I know, you were going to be blinded. I confess. Good evening, everyone. I'd, I'd like to welcome all of you to this evening's assembly on Cannon Green. The idea for an assembly on integrity grew out of a series of discussions last year among student members of the Honor and Discipline Committees and the undergraduate student government. The students wanted to encourage members of the university community to reflect on the principles of integrity and honesty, which are so fundamental to academic work, and that I hope guide all of us in our everyday dealings with one another. Integrity is essential to the conduct of our work here at Princeton because at all institutions of higher education, ideas are the coin of the realm. As I said at opening exercises, one of the primary missions of the university, as noted explicitly in rights, rules, and responsibilities, is the pursuit of truth. As seekers of truth, therefore, it is critically important that we take full responsibility for our own ideas and that when we draw on the ideas of others, we give credit where credit is due. As a close-knit residential community of students, faculty, and staff, it is essential that honesty pervade our relationships with one another. It's our hope and our expectation that students, indeed all members of the academic community, will carry with them a commitment to integrity beyond Fitzrandolph Gates, and that this commitment will continue as a fundamental principle of their lives after and outside of Princeton. We are honored tonight to have three members of the university family who will reflect on integrity from their own perspectives. Liz Biney Amisa will be our first speaker. Liz is a senior majoring in molecular biology and working toward a certificate in Chinese language and culture. She has been a member of the undergraduate student government and is president of cap and gown. She serves on the student committee of the Department of Molecular Biology. Liz. Thank you, President Tillman. <laughs> Our Princeton experience, it all starts with freshman week. After a week of rolling around in the mud on OA, doing community service on CA, or just preparing to move your whole life to Princeton, New Jersey, we all arrive here at Princeton so anxious, so nervous, so scared, so excited, and so overwhelmed by the four-year academic career we're about to embark on. In the midst of consoling our parents on their newfound postpartum empty nest syndrome, trying to unpack our lives and get situated, attending forums and assemblies about what Princeton life is like, all Princeton has to offer you, and what you personally may offer to our school community, getting to know your classmates and upperclassmen, and adjusting to life on campus, you meet extraordinary people, including accomplished athletes, amazing musicians, Westinghouse Award winners, presidential scholars, young entrepreneurs with their own companies, inventors, and children of diplomats who have lived all over the world. And you think to yourself, wow, how did I get here? What does this all mean? 
How will I fit in here at Princeton? Did I make the right decision in coming here? How will I establish my personal identity in this incredible community of scholars? What does it mean to be a Princetonian? We are all so blessed and so lucky to be part of a class of 1,160 of our peers from all around the world who get to spend four years of our emotional, academic, so and social lives here at Princeton. The incredible intellectual, technological, and information resources we have in our grasp, in addition to the faculty and students here, aren't matched anywhere else. Coming from vast socioeconomic, family, ancestral, and geographical backgrounds, we all have much to offer each other, and we are here to learn from each other, to teach each other, and to grow into the thinkers, the scholars, and the researchers who will leave lasting impressions in our society and in the world as we know it. Princeton in the nation's service and the service of all nation is a, is a motto that we as Princetonians must take to heart, for we are the leaders of tomorrow. Our experiences here go beyond ourselves, as they will shape and mold how we handle ourselves in business, in study, and in life in the years to come after we graduate. In our four years here, we learn how to analyze, evaluate, rethink, and synthesize ideas, concepts, and data, and data from sources we read and experiments we do, all in efforts to learn to think for ourselves. The only ethic that keeps our intellectual community here at Princeton alive, united, reciprocal, and well is trust. We trust that our own ideas and viewpoints will be appreciated and valued as our own, despite how avant-garde or unusual they may be, even if others do not, do not necessarily agree with them. We trust that others will be true in their ideas and viewpoints as well. It is our duty and obligation to give credit where credit is due and to uphold the ethic of intellectual honesty. According to the Duke University Kennan Institute for Ethics Center for Academic Integrity, academic integrity is a fundamental value of teaching, learning, and scholarship, the three cornerstones of education, both academic and life-related. Doing your own work, although it seems very tedious at times, will be the most rewarding aspect of your entire Princeton career. To know that the work is your own, whether it's a problem set, a lab report, a paper or a project should be the most gratifying, genuine feeling you should have, even if the amount of time spent was not originally planned for or desired. It is your responsibility to use all of your capabilities to complete the assigned task with the utmost honesty, truth, and candor. At Princeton, the junior independent work and the quintessentially Princeton thesis are your personal academic signatures on your Princeton education. No two JPs or theses are alike, and they are really your time to shine and to study what you're truly interested in using the skills you learned in the classroom. Your senior thesis is the culmination of your four years here, and it should be and is what you're most proud of, of accomplishing at the end of your career. The honor code and academic integrity regulations are in place to ensure that every student's right to ownership of academic work is upheld. The student body upholds the honor code and each of us is responsible for ensuring that the trust in our community is not broken. When you turn your, in your work, when you turn in work that is not your own, you're not only cheating yourself by not thinking for yourself, but you're cheating your classmates, your preceptors, and your professors out of the opportunity to learn from you. In that same vein, if you're aware of any fraudulent work done by your classmates, it's your duty to uphold the sanctity of the honor code and of our intellectual community of scholars and report it. When you sign the honor pledge on all the work you hand in for a grade, remember that 
remember what it really means and remember that your intellectual life here is in a bigger context outside of yourself. In closing, I have some advice for the class of 2007 and for those of us that need a little bit of reminding. Take a vested interest in what you study and take pride in the work you do. Also, give credit to the originators of ideas and concepts that are not your own and cite the source. Now, you don't have to be as extreme as I was on my first Princeton literature paper where I put a citation after every sentence. My preceptor thought I was a bit extreme, but I was really scared that I was not coming up with my own stuff. Sometimes we are overwhelmed by the amount of activities on campus and we run out of time for assignments. Please remember how important academic integrity is and don't cheat. I believe it was Sophocles who said, I'd rather fail with honor than succeed by fraud. I'm not advocating slacking by any means, but don't cheat yourself and others because you ran out of time for an assignment and really want a good grade for work you did not do. Also, take advantage of professors' office hours, after-class lectures, the fellows' programs in the residential colleges, and if your eating club has um, a dinner lecture series with distinguished alum or presidents, uh, or sorry, professors, <laughs> take advantage of that to expand not only your mind, but to ask those pertinent questions that are always on your mind, and to expand your perspective as well as the perspective of your peers and your professors. And finally, I think this is the most important thing that you can ever learn, is to time manage. We all come from different backgrounds and different high schools and educational backgrounds, but it's important that you learn how to get everything done and to balance your life, not only socially, emotionally, physically, but also academically. This is the key to survival at Princeton and life in general. I want to wish everybody luck this upcoming school year and to remember to take pride in your work and to be honest and true in it. You owe it to yourselves and to the, livelihoods of, the livelihood of our Princeton intellectual community. Thank you. Thank you, Lizzie. Our next speaker is John Fleming, the Lewis Fairchild Class of 24 Professor of English and Comparative Literature. John received his doctoral degree from Princeton in 1963 and has been a member of our faculty for four decades. Many of you know Professor Fleming through his courses, both on campus and online, on Chaucer and medieval literature and culture. Others of you know him as a regular contributor to the Daily Princetonian, who in his column, Gladly Learn, Gladly Teach, offers a view of campus life from the perspective of a teacher. He is the faculty marshal who leads us in university convocations, and he serves as the director of the program on freshman seminars. He has also served as master of Wilson College and as faculty advisor of the Honor Committee. Professor Fleming. Thank you. I must congratulate Eli Goldsmith and the other organizers of this integrity assembly for their excellent and useful initiative. But you all must know that I am nearly as bemused as I am honored by the invitation to address it. I do quite a bit of talking one way or another, but I honestly don't know whether this is the easiest or the most difficult of a career's worth of speaking assignments. My instructions, as I understand them, are to offer the vegetarian hors d'oeuvres 
preliminary to the red meat main course of Mr. Bradley's talk. <laughs> to warm the audience up with remarks that are profound, yet lighthearted, wise, amusing, elegant, grave, cunning in their artifice, yet giving an impression of freshness and spontaneity, <laughs> all the while achieving inspiration while eschewing homiletic didacticism, but most importantly, remarks of no greater duration than 8 minutes 42 seconds max. <laughs> I mean, how difficult can it be, asked a friend with whom I shared my uneasiness. Integrity. It's like motherhood and apple pie. Speak in favor of it. <laughs> but of course, God has so arranged matters that I am incapable of an existential experience of motherhood. And while I'm not actually hostile to apple pie, I regard it at best as an emergency stand-in for blueberry. Still, the motherhood and apple pie remarks are fairly, a fairly facile matter. Integrity is an excellent thing. You should all have it. If perchance you lack it, you should get it as soon as possible. Even if that means postponing the fulfillment of your EM requirement for a semester or visiting some unfamiliar websites. I'm aware, of course, that this is an integrity assembly, not an honor assembly, that its organizers have intentionally chosen to focus on broad issues of what President McCosh called moral philosophy rather than on the concrete mechanisms of the Princeton honor system. Nonetheless, the only conceivable justification for the invitation offered me is the fact that for most of two decades, I have been a faculty advisor to the undergraduate honor committee, and for most of that time, the only one. This role, though laterally formalized by the dean of the faculty, remains essentially informal and undefined. The idea has been that it might be useful to the committee to have access to the advice, if wanted, of a senior faculty member with a certain amount of institutional memory. Such an arrangement has seemed desirable for at least two reasons. In an incrementally litigious age in which the once unquestioned judicial and disciplinary procedures of colleges have been increasingly challenged, the university has for prudential reasons sought some measure of guidance, however minimal, in the honor process. The second and more important reason is that there is plenty of evidence, some anecdotal and some founded in statistical surveys, that the honor system lacks the committed support of increasing numbers of undergraduates and faculty alike. If we can believe anonymous surveys, a very large number of Princeton students, all of whom have signed a solemn document promising to support the honor system, would not in fact turn in a friend they found cheating. I have no statistics for the faculty, but I do know there is widespread indifference and even some active hostility to a system that seems to many anachronistic, impractical, or fatally infected with the contagion of elitism. Very seldom do I hear articulated by either students or faculty what the honor code really is. A system designed to support the truthfulness and honesty indispensable in an academic community. The honor code is in fact the only formal contract ever negotiated between Princeton students and Princeton faculty. In my losing, or rather long since lost, battle against the idolatry of a sloppy use of the word diversity in the American Academy, I've had occasion to point out that Roger's thesaurus 
can record diversity among the antonyms of integrity. That is to say, of a wholeness or unity that transcends particularity and partiality, though it may and often does characterize them. To be sure, we must treasure particularity and learn from it, our own and that of others, a particularity of race and gender, of the diversity of gifts, tongues, religions, and those constellations of social habits often summarized as social background. For indeed, societies grow and thrive in the rich soil of cultural particularity. But the requirements of integrity, which is to say of wholeness or completeness, demand our allegiance also to values that trump the tribal and the parochial. What is integral is what is general, Catholic, comprehensive, values that before they can define individual personality, guarantee the community, which is the necessary arena of individuality. There is here, perhaps, a paradox. The greater the need for an integral vision, the harder it is to achieve. Surely, in today's world, the community that should most concern an audience such as this one, an audience swimming in privilege, enlightenment, and nearly unrestricted possibility, is the global community of all of humankind. So easy to say, so hard to live. The population of the globe is approximately 6,300,000,000. And even the scant 5% that comprises our own national American community is vast beyond our imagining. No wonder we recoil in stupor to our own tiny and familiar communities. We are fellow members, you and I, of the community of learning, of students and teachers, that has the local habitation and the name of Princeton. The demands of integrity commanding us in this little corner, while not at bottom philosophically or morally different from those made upon us as citizens of the United States or as fellow pilgrims on this planet, are wonderfully clear and graspable in their specificity. The essence of academic integrity is truthful dealing in teaching and in learning. Now, news stories about cheating by college students, paralleled by others about cheating by professional scholars, are now journalistic commonplaces. Since I'm a faculty member, it is faculty attitudes that concern me most. Academic integrity is not exhausted by the vulgar issue of cheating, but it offers convenient ingress to the discussion. This very week has seen desultory correspondence in the New York Times from various professors who blame student cheating on professors because they are so pedagogically maladroit as to impose assignments that allow cheating. Now, there is something in this, but so very little as to be visible only with the help of powerful optical instruments. The Princeton students and faculty who a century ago framed the Princeton Honor Code must strike us today as charmingly quaint as the detachable starched collars and occasional spats seen in their photographs. For example, in framing the code, they seem to have had in mind no index of student evaluation other than the in-class examination. How could they possibly have foreseen the world of problem sets, policy seminars, lab reports, take-home exams, high-powered independent research, 
that are the daily bread of undergraduate life today. Even on first principles, they may have seemed to us today to have stressed the individual at the expense of the communal. For although teaching and learning can and do take place, even under appalling conditions, a friend of mine has regularly taught a Dante seminar in Attica prison, for example, they will thrive as we wish them to thrive at Princeton only under the luxurious conditions of vigilantly fostered sense of liberty, respect, and above all, mutual trust. If I have had the temerity even to imagine that an aging professor could navigate between the scylla of hypocrisy and the charybdis of pomposity to commend to you an abstract academic integrity, it can be only because of the paradoxical truth long ago enunciated by one of history's greatest teachers, St. Augustine. In his remarkable book, De Magistro, or Concerning the Teacher, Augustine says that, strictly speaking, no teacher has ever taught anybody anything. A teacher may propose truths, but it is the learner, using what Augustine called the indwelling logos, or reason, for him a faculty at once of mind and spirit, who must do the heavy lifting of testing, assenting, rejecting, or qualifying. I may teach you that two plus two equals five, or that two plus two equals four. Your logos will accept the one and reject the other. Augustine believed that moral truths, like mathematical truths, were hardwired within the interstices of our shared rational nature. Here the teacher's job is not to invent or to discover, but to jog the spiritual memory. There are certain things, the imperative for academic integrity prominent among them, that go without saying, but should nevertheless not go unsaid. Hence the utility of this assembly, which I have been honored to address. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Fleming. This evening's keynote speaker is Senator Bill Bradley. After winning a gold medal at the 1964 Olympics, graduating from Princeton in 1965 as a history major, and completing his master's as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, Bill went on to leadership roles in athletics and in politics. Throughout his career, he has exemplified our motto of Princeton in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. From 1967 until 1977, he played professional basketball for the New York Knicks and helped lead them to two NBA championships. He then represented New Jersey in the United States Senate from 1979 until his retirement in 1997. As senator, he gained a reputation as one of the nation's most thoughtful and respected politicians. From the Senate floor to his campaign for the presidency, he has sought hands-on solutions for building a stronger nation and bringing new meaning to the lives of its citizens. 
the author of five books on American politics, culture, and economy. He is currently a managing director of Allen and & Company and chief outside advisor to McKinsey & Company's nonprofit practice. He also has been an essayist for CBS Evening News and a visiting professor at Stanford, Notre Dame, and the University of Maryland, as well as a trustee of his alma mater, Princeton University. Please join me in welcoming Bill Bradley. Thank you very much, President Tillman, for that introduction. And I'll say to uh, this freshman class, you are lucky to have uh, Shirley Tillman as the president of this university. And I think by the time you graduate, you'll understand why. Elizabeth, thank you for your thoughtful remarks. Uh, Professor Fleming, um, you spoke longer than eight minutes and 42 <laughs> seconds. And based upon what you said, I, I don't think of you as a vegetarian. Um, and as a warm-up act, I don't think we're going to make it in Atlantic City. This is a beautiful night in Princeton, New Jersey. And I see all of you out there sitting on the lawn because I have infrared lens in my glasses and can see in the dark. And the real test of whether this evening has reached you will be determined by how many of you return to exactly this same place where annually the freshmen have their second conference on integrity and honor. And that is on January 21st. I intend to be here, and I hope that you will be here too, on the lawn in the dark on January 21st. <laughs> Tonight, I speak to you as a former Princeton undergraduate, as a former Princeton basketball player, as a former Princeton trustee, as a former resident of Henry Little and Dodge Osborne Halls, as a former U.S. Senator who had Princeton as one of his constituents. In fact, tonight you might say, I speak to you as the former Bill Bradley. <laughs> Most of you are brilliant in the, may we, in the way we measure rational brilliance grades, SAT scores, recommendations. And all of you are achievers. Grades, SAT scores, recommendations, extracurricular activities. And Princeton offers you unparalleled resources to continue your path of brilliance and achievement. State-of-the-art laboratories, computer centers, art galleries, athletic facilities, and of course, world-class libraries. It offers great teachers, five Nobel Prize winners, eight Pulitzer winners, 16 MacArthur Grant winners. It offers unique learning forms, including the independent work expressed best in your senior thesis, 
and precepts where you and a small number of your classmates will interact with full professors. It offers an incredible mix of classmates, as I think you probably are aware even after your first week at Princeton, some of whom will become friends for life. You will learn things from your classmates that will rival the insights that you gain from many professors, for it's in those settings that your personality, your values, your passion will be most easily expressed. And as you sit here tonight, I'm sure some of you feel the way Harry Truman, who's the subject of my senior thesis here at Princeton, felt upon entering the United States Senate in 1934. On his first day in the Senate, he looked around at the great names of the Senate of that time and asked himself, how did I get here? Then a few years later, as he was sitting in the Senate, he looked around at those same senators and asked himself, how did they get here? <laughs> you are now members of a diverse community, but one with traditions that have survived the test of time, one of which is the Princeton Honor Code. When you sign the Honor Code, you're saying that your work here, your exams and papers, are your own, as the pledge you will sign says, that you have neither given nor received assistance. It might seem like a small thing, but it's the essence of your Princeton experience. By signing it and abiding by it, you're saying you understand that stealing your way to success at Princeton denies you the satisfaction of true, of true achievement, hides who you really are from your friends, and puts a doubt in your own mind that could affect your self-confidence in the long run. It's so easy to cheat these days with the Internet. But by signing the pledge, you're joining a community that chooses another path. The Honor Code is absolute probably one of the few absolutes of your college experience. I remember, for example, in my senior year, a classmate who was the co-captain of the football team was caught cheating on an engineering exam. He was expelled months before graduation. His was a human tragedy, but there could be no exceptions. And from this night forward, all of you know it. The reason integrity is so important is because the whole academic enterprise rests on free inquiry, which in turn depends on the authenticity of the ideas expressed. Following your curiosity and drawing your own conclusions is the essence of a liberal arts education, and it's a habit which, once developed, will serve you well for a lifetime. If you take someone else's work you are no longer an honest participant in the most important opportunity that Princeton offers you. But honor and integrity are more than the single rule, don't steal. They might start there, but their application has much greater breadth. And as you go through life, I promise you, you'll be tested often. I have been 
a professional basketball player, a U.S. senator, a writer, and a businessman. And in each field, questions of integrity have arisen. For example, take the great Boston Celtic player Larry Bird, an NBA Hall of Fame player. After nine years of wear and tear, his back was giving him a lot of trouble. Each time he left the locker room, he moved as if he were disabled. But when he got to the court, out there before the crowd, something happened to him. Former Celtic CEO Dave Gabbett once told me it was as if he'd been given a new back. He didn't seem to realize he was in pain until the competition was behind him. But when Larry Bird finished the 1991-92 season, the prognosis was grim. His body had finally worn out. His contract contained a two-year option for $4.5 million a year, which would automatically take effect on August 15th if he didn't notify the club of his retirement. On August 12th, Bird went to see Gavitt and announced that he was going to retire. Gavitt, aware of the August 15th deadline and of all the years of dedicated service that Larry had given the Boston Celtics, asked him whether he wanted a few more days to think it over. I know what day this is, Bird said. If I'm not going to play and know I can't play, I'm not going to take the money. I'm not going to take one cent I don't earn. Integrity. Honor. He left $9 million on the table. He understood what Fannie Lou Hamer once said, the most important thing isn't just making a living, but making a life. In politics, there's a story of Russ Feingold, senator from Wisconsin. In 1998, he ran for re-election, his first re-election. Since his best-known issue was campaign finance reform, he refused to take large soft money, which are unlimited size contributions, which were legal, but contrary to the legislation he was sponsoring that had not yet been enacted into law. He started that Senate race 20 points ahead of his Republican opponent. By September 15th, his lead was cut to 10, and the Democratic National Committee told him, take the big money. He said no. By October 15th, his lead was cut to five, and the DNC again implored him, take the large contribution so you can spend more for TV ads. He again said, no. One week before the election, he was in a dead heat, and the DNC told him the momentum had shifted to his opponent, and if he didn't take the big money, he would lose. He said, no. He refused to compromise his principles. He put his Senate career on the line for what he believed, and he won. Integrity. Honor. So you see, you'll need your moral compass long after you sign your last honor pledge at Princeton. 
takes a lifetime to build the reputation and only one false step to call it into doubt. Just look at the recent scandals in corporate America and the Catholic Church and consider the not-so-artful dodging even at the highest levels of our government. The issue isn't to get away with what you can or to abide by just the letter of the law. Abiding by the law is necessary, but not sufficient. Rather, it is to determine your own standard of integrity in the moment and circumstances in which you're living and then act upon it. Being attuned to the ethical dimension can give you peace of mind, too. For example, when I would ask my small-town banker father why he didn't do X and Y in business, things which were legal and could have made him a lot of money, he would reply that although legal, they weren't proper. He would say, I didn't do them because I wanted to sleep well every night. In my own life, there have been many examples of constantly assessing what is the honorable course. And at the risk of sounding too self-referential or immodest, let me share two of those moments with you. I wrote a book from 1992 to 95, Time Present, Time Past. It was my third book, and it was about America and my public service. The publisher offered me a big advance payment. The Senate ethics rules permitted me to take the money. But I felt there was a potential conflict if I took the money up front from a corporation that had issues before Congress, as all of them do. While the advance would have been certain money, even if my book didn't sell, I decided to take only a royalty for each book sold on the grounds that the public, not the publisher, would decide how much money I made. As it turned out, the book reached the New York Times bestseller list, but the total amount of royalties ended up being about half of what was offered as an advance. But I slept better at night knowing I'd done what I thought was proper. Another example in my own life relates to Princeton. While I was a senator, I was asked uh, if I wanted to join the Board of Trustees, as senators often do for their alma maters. Of course, I wanted to join because coming from a small town in Missouri to Princeton changed my life. And service on the board was a way of giving back. But I decided that a potential conflict existed between board service and my responsibility to the voters of New Jersey and America, so I reluctantly said no. The very next year, an issue came before the Senate Finance Committee called Gifts of Appreciated Property, in which Princeton had a vital interest. Had I been on the board, it would have had no effect on my position, but since I opposed the change, I might have felt some unneeded pressure to do for Princeton what I thought at the moment was wrong for the country. 
By deciding not to be on the board, I'd removed even the hint of conflict, which was good for Princeton and for me. And I could proceed with a totally clear conscience. I believe integrity, honor, have implications beyond individual honesty or life situations of some ethical complexity. I think they also relate to public policy. In 2000, I ran for the Democratic nomination for president. I did not succeed. But that defeat doesn't make the cause I advocated less just or the fight less honorable. My whole presidential campaign was premised on the idea that the effort had to reflect what I really believed, not what some pollster told me to say. That was its integrity, its authenticity. I used to say in, stump, in my stump speech every time, the premise of my campaign is you can tell people exactly what you believe and when. Well, <laughs> I still believe that, but maybe I just didn't do it well enough. At core, the presidential effort was based on an unabashed appeal to idealism, a belief that good can triumph over bad, that principle can defeat and overcome expedience. I remember with some amusement the press asking me if I got tired of giving the stump speech. My answer was no. The thing that kept me engaged was the eyes, the eyes of the people in the audience. As I spoke, I looked into those eyes and I often felt a very strong connection. I imagined that I might somehow be able to connect one pair of eyes with another and then another and another until a bond was formed that would grow into a powerful current so that people would see what they shared and how they might affect idealistic change. It was at those moments that I understood the power of Eleanor Roosevelt's words when she said, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Since the primaries of 2000, I've heard from many young former campaign workers, and they told me that the experience gave them something to believe in that was larger than themselves. It allowed them to see that there's honor in working for a better world, that it's not naive to appeal to the better side of human nature, that it's all right to have faith in your neighbor and the people in humankind. To all young people who believe that America can be just, I hope there's some in this freshman class, I say never give up and never sell out. You don't have to give up your idealism in America to be successful. You don't have to be complacent. To the contrary, you should be angry with the state of our democracy, the conditions of poverty, the absence of universal health care, the continuation of racism, the lying that all too often passes as good politics. And if you get angry enough and are smart enough and work hard enough, you can change things. You don't have to give up what you truly believe so as not to offend power, for real power lies within each of you individually and all of us collectively. 
And it begins with how you define the difference between right and wrong. It begins with how you put together your own code of honor. It begins with having the courage to live by that code. Princeton hopes that your experience here will contribute to your intellectual growth, yeah, and also provide you with the experience of how it feels to be a part of an honorable community. Over time, only you can make the larger and more personal ethical decisions. It is my hope that you will make them in a way that will allow you to sleep very well every night. Thank you. I want to thank all of this evening's speakers, Lizzie, Professor Fleming, and especially Bill Bradley, uh, for setting precisely the right course for this, e for this year's academic year. I want to thank the members of the Honor Committee, the Discipline Committee, and the Undergraduate Student Government for suggesting that we hold this Integrity Assembly this evening. And finally, let me thank all of you for coming this evening. I hope tonight's event will be the start of an ongoing conversation. Good evening. <laughs>